Today we are celebrating Reformation Sunday, and I don't know if you know how big of an impact that that is, but today, 504 years ago, is the day that the Catholic priest named Martin Luther nailed a challenge to the Catholic Church on the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. It was called the 95 Theses. You might have heard of it. He, he, he called them the 95 criticisms. He was critiquing the church. Um, he was con- critiquing the Roman Catholic practice of selling indulgences. For many of you that might not know what that is, essentially an indulgence is selling uh, uh, forgivenesses of sins. It, it was a paper you could purchase through your money or action. You could purchase a paper that said, from the Catholic church, you were relieved of your sin. They would do, there was different levels of indulgences. I can't remember the whole breakdown of it, but there was like a partial indulgence, a full indulgence. And there was even a section set aside that if you did so many good things, they would put it into a coffer because you had, you had, eterned, you had attained eternity and then people could draw from your indulgences after you died to, to help pluck people that you loved out of the pits of purgatory. It's a, it was weird. And Martin Luther saw the, the ridiculousness behind what was happening after he read through the scriptures. And he, he said, hey, this ain't right, guys. This isn't how it works. There's a, an encounter of, a, 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 there was, there was a, a sect of priests that went around town to town just for the purpose of selling indulgences. They weren't preaching. That wasn't their job. Their job was just to make money for the church at the time. It was kind of crazy. And Martin Luther, can't remember the guy's name. He comes into Martin Luther's town and he's doing this. And Martin Luther like chases him out of town. It's like, that's not what we do. Not here. It's amazing. We look at this as something like, uh, as a protest. Martin Luther was protesting the church, but he wasn't. Martin Luther wanted to have a conversation. He didn't want to uh, leave and break up and divide and destroy the, the church, he wanted to reform the church. He wanted to reestablish the truth of the scriptures. And that's what he did with those 95 theses, those criticisms. He set out to reform. That's why we call it reformation. It's not a schism in his mind. It's a reforming of the heart of one's mind and it, as it sees and it interprets scripture. Luther rejected the false teaching, and the church became so angry at what he was doing that they tried to have him executed. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't get him hung. They couldn't get him killed. They couldn't get him burnt at the stake. They couldn't do it. The funny thing is we look here, we, 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 we paint Luther as this big uh, patriarch in the Protestant Reformation, but he wasn't the first one. Today is the day, the, the October 31st, 1517, that he knocked, tacked those things. But this was a, a movement that started uh, a few hundred years before Luther. This is a movement that started before that. Um, 200 years before Luther, we find a man named John Wycliffe, uh, Wycliffe who had the audacity to declare that the Pope and the church were second in authority only to that of Scripture. Can you imagine somebody is less than Scripture, especially the Pope? That was unheard of. He declares this, then he denied that the church had the authority to sell forgiveness. It wasn't for the church to bestow upon one forgiveness. It was only upon the bloodshed of Christ. And the Christ's work is that for the remission of sins. 
He began also to translate the Bible from Latin Vulgate into English. And for this, which is funny, he didn't, that, the Wycliffe Bible wasn't even completed until after he was dead, right? They were so worried about him. It wasn't even completed until he, he was long dead. Uh, but the Catholic Church wasn't pleased with that work that he was doing. They condemned Wycliffe. Wycliffe. I, I, always, I want to read Wycliffe, but it's Wycliffe because it's old English, okay? Uh, they, they condemned him with these words. He's, they said, this is the church. This is the holy church, says, by this translation, Bible into English, the scriptures have become vulgar. And they are more available to lay and even to women who can read. They're more available than the learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. Can you imagine? I praise God for the work of those men standing against the tyranny of the church and of their day. Because without their work, we wouldn't have the access that we have. We, we might. I'm sure God still would have done that work. But these men at great risk to life and limb. For this reason, the followers of Wycliffe's teachings were just designated by Catholic officials as Bible men. Can you imagine that? What a name. That was supposed to be slanderous to them. That was supposed to be a mockery. Bible man. I hope, I pray to God that one day I am known as a Bible man. That is an honor. About 30 years after Wycliffe's death, we find the Catholic officials, they dig up his body, they burn his remains, and they scatter his ashes over the river Swift so that his, uh, his ashes would be scattered to show their disdain for his efforts. Can you imagine? They are so angry with this man that 30 years after he's dead, they dig up his skeleton just to burn it and scatter his ashes. Talk about a legacy. Standing against tyranny, standing against the enemy, I pray that I have half as much legacy in the work that I've done for Christ on this earth. But I probably won't, and I'm okay with that. About 30 years after he dies, a man named John Huss also rejected indulgences and taught that we don't have to pay to work for our sins. The church arrests him and burns him at the stake for his teachings. This is a time in history between 1450 to about 1600, where the Catholic, Holy Roman Catholic Church was so against the people having access to God and his word that they killed more Christians than the entire Roman Empire did before them. You think Nero was the great threat? It was a pharisaical Catholic church in the, the mid, medieval times. It's terrifying. Can you imagine living under that threat? These were brave men who faced the threat of death because they stood up for Scripture. But it was only when Martin Luther came along that things began to change. From about the 1500s, uh, uh, 250 brave men stepped up to join him, and they began what was what we call now as the Reformation movement. They built their theology around something that eventually they called the five solas. You guys ever heard that term before? 
their theology was, were these five doctrines that they believed would be the foundational truths of their belief system. They were, they were the doctrines that they believed, a lot of people call these the doctrines of grace nowadays, that they believed would be the full understanding. If you were to read scripture and apply it to your life through the lens of these doctrines, you would have a better understanding of how you fit into the puzzle piece of God's work. Okay? They were sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. These are Latin, okay? This is fun stuff. Uh, the Bible alone is our highest authority. Don't see anything wrong with that statement. Sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone, not by the works that we do, or not by the words of any other man, but by the grace of God. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Christ Jesus. Sola Christus, Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Sola Dea Gloria, to the glory of God alone, which is the meaning of we live to bring glory to God and Him alone. These are the basic building blocks of that Reformation movement. As the church history, and I, I challenge you, you need to get involved in understanding what went before we came. You have to understand the history of who went before us, the fights that the church has gone through already, because what's interesting is what we see now in society with the church has already taken place. It's just we have not read about it. We have not learned about it. We haven't, we haven't been given the tools in which to fight because we think we know better. But I challenge you, I encourage you to read about these times, these periods in church history. What does Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. We've been here before, folks. Let's learn how, they, let's learn how the church, how these, these great men and women of God stood against the enemy before. I love how Paul, when he's writing, I think it's to the Galatians. I can't remember what church he's writing to, but he's in one of his letters. And his letters are meant to be spread amongst the nations, not just for one group of people. They're meant to go to all the churches. And so I take his into heart as, as he's writing it to me. He says, do as I do as I emulate Christ. That is the mindset that they, the early church passed on to that, the next church, and then the next church, and the next church, and then all of a sudden it got twisted and misconstrued, and now people don't like to do what went before because they might have done it wrong or we're smarter than them, whatever excuse you have. But we can learn from those who went before us. And so this morning, as we are celebrating this Reformation Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ continued to persevere and fight and pursue his bride, and he does so today still. We're not celebrating the men. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ still pursues his bride. And he will keep her unblemished. There's hope there. I think it's time that the church has a, another reformation. We stomp out the progressive movement that's destroying the beauty and the truth behind the scriptures. That's in our, a conversation for another day. One Reformation scholar had these words to say. He says, without these five confessional statements, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and glory to God alone, we do not have the true church, and certainly not one that will survive for very long. For how can any church be a true and faithful church if it does not stand for Scripture alone and is not committed to a biblical gospel and does not exist for God's glory? 
A church without these convictions has ceased to be a true church, whatever else it might be. He's saying that if you don't embrace these statements, you don't have much of a church. Let us on Reformation Sunday examine these solas and honor these men who risked life and limb to safeguard the sanctity of God's word. Sola Dea Gloria. We're going to kind of work through these a little bit backwards. What, to the glory of God alone. In Ephesians or chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, God saves us so that we reflect his glory. A lot, of, a lot of modern preachers, you might have heard this before, and I've used this analogy. This is something that's pretty common today. You guys, ever, you guys know how the, the, the sun and moon work, right, in relation to one another. How does, how does the moon get its light? It reflects the sun, right? And what happens on a new moon? When there's something blocking the reflection of the sun, the moon doesn't shine light. The moon in and of itself has no light to shine. So are we. We have no light to shine apart from Christ. So as we are in reflection of Christ, we shine the light of his glory to the masses. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Guess what? That light doesn't come from you. It doesn't radiate from you. It doesn't come out of you. It comes as you reflect the glory of God. To the glory of God alone. Jesus says it this way. He says in Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You want to know how somebody who's working for the Lord or working for themselves, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? One of the things that, 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 that's, that makes me feel icky is it makes me, when people say that was a good message, I hate that. I mean, by all means, sometimes I need encouragement in that, that respect. But it's not my message. Glory to God. Amen? It's his message. And I, I, I'm going to hold you guys to account. I'm charging you this morning to keep me accountable to that. That whatever comes from my mouth is something that is only of God. Which means you guys have got to be on your toes. You got to test the spirit. You got to read your word. You got to keep me in check. Ask me questions. Ask me to explain that a little bit more. Because sometimes I say things that some people don't fully understand. And I get that because my brain works weird. So ask me. Keep me in, in check, in bounds. Keep me accountable to the glory of God alone. Everything we, sh- we do should reflect back onto God. Everything that we, should, that we do should reflect God's glory, not for us, but so that those who are near us would see and glorify God as well. You know, the, the best way for you to be a witness it's just to reflect the glory of God on, into the darkness. It's the easiest way. You don't even have to say anything. You just got to live. You know the word worship means uh, worthiness? 
It comes from uh, a, a Greek translation into Latin, into uh, English, and worship, which in Old English means worthiness. And we have changed it into worship. So with our worship, what we are saying, the thing that we are worshiping is worthy of our essence, of our time, of our worship. It's not just singing songs. I had a conversation with a, uh, an individual on Facebook just recently about, um, some of y'all might have seen the post I made, and I understand now that it could have been taken as I was trying to be argumentative, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, and I need to have a little bit more tact when I bring these types of things out, but our weapon is not the songs that we sing, folks. Our weapon is the Word of God. The songs that we sing is the sound of our, our weapons clanging off the enemy's shields, clanging off the enemy. Have you guys ever heard a sword? You guys watch the medieval battles, the Lord of the Rings, that sort of fantasy stuff? You see these big battles, and there's people swinging these swords, these broad swords and these weapons, and what, it's loud. The sound in and of itself is not the weapon. It is only an indicator that the weapon has been used. Church, our worship, our song, the way we present ourselves to the world is a reflection of the weapon being used, not the weapon in itself. Glory to God alone. When we bring ourselves as a sacrifice to him, as we lay ourselves at his feet and accept what he has done for us, folks, we can do nothing but bring glory to him because we realize that we can't do it ourselves. We can't, we are inadequate. We are incapable of saving ourselves. Therefore, we are in such desperate need of someone to do that work for us. There is no one good, no, not one. And in that truth, we find the hope of Christ, the freedom in Christ, because thank God I don't have to do it myself because I am woefully inadequate. Glory to God alone. The second one I want to examine is solo Christus, solus Christus, Christ alone. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, if you don't have it highlighted on your Bible, you need to. Acts 4, 11, verse 12, or 4, verse 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no greater name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone. Christ alone. Why is this so important? Because today... The world and even a lot of people within the church want to say it's not just Christ alone. Have you guys ever heard of Richard Rohr? He's a teacher. He came out of a, a he came out a Catholic, but then they're like, "Dude, you're even so crazy. We can't even keep you. We can't even claim you." He has this idea of what it means to be the Christ. He 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 says that there is a separate. Jesus, and there's a separate Christ, that Jesus became the Christ when he died, but he wasn't always the Christ. Do you guys want, you know what the word Christ means? 
And he wrote this book. He wrote this book that Christ isn't Jesus's last name. That's the book that he has. That's the book that he, and I'm like, well, no dip. Christ isn't a last name. It's a declaration. It is a title. It is Christ Jesus. But they're Eastern, so they do things a little bit different, right? No, it is Messiah Jesus. It is Savior Jesus. You can't separate the title from the work that has been done by God incarnate. You cannot separate the two. Christ alone, not spiritual rocks or gems, not singing songs, not thinking that if I just do enough good in the world, the world will, will bring good back onto me. Karma doesn't exist. I'm sorry. You can't manifest it. You can't pay for it. Christ alone. There's no level of enlightenment, enlightenment that you can reach to transcend to that otherworldly thinking. Uh, I, I like to say my enlightenment is realizing that I will never be much more than a sludge scum on the bottom of Jesus' boot. That's enlightened thinking. Because once you realize how low you truly are and how depraved and wicked you really are, you understand the magnitude of what Christ did for us. Oh, what wretched sinner I am. So why? Why is it so important to bring that message? Well, I want to because the only other way to be saved is based upon our righteousness, right? So when we say anything other than Christ alone, then it becomes about our righteousness. We'd have to be good enough to be good enough to get to heaven. Nothing about what I know about myself and my reflection as I read through Scripture gives me much hope that my righteousness would do anything much good for me. But if we ever could be good enough, and to be good enough to get into heaven, then God wouldn't, would have to let us in, right? If we could be good enough, if we were just good enough, God, this is a good person, you did good work, you did good, he did so good, then God would have to let us in, right? He would have to let us in. He couldn't keep us out if he wanted to, but because we bought our ticket based on our righteousness, See, when we, when we claim that it's anything other than Christ and it becomes about what we do and God's got to be bent to the whim of man, therefore God is no longer sovereign, man is sovereign. And I don't want that to be true because if man was sovereign, we'd be in a world of hurt for all eternity. But praise be to God that he is sovereign over all. But the Bible teaches us that's never going to happen. The Bible teaches us that we can never rise above. We can never be the ones in charge of our destiny. We can never be the ones. It has to be God calling us out of our, di our disgust, our filth, our darkness, because we cannot do such on our own. The Bible tells us in Romans that all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So if you get what, if you and I got what we deserved, Praise be to God. The third solo we're going to look at is sola gratia. Grace alone. I love this. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the, the great love which he, hath, which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, even while we were still sinners, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Again, highlight that. Make a note of that. That is, These are foundational things, folks. These are things that we as the church need to understand. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I was reading a quote, and I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones. I can't remember who it was, but he said, I praise God that it's by God's grace alone because I don't want to get to heaven and hear about people bragging how they got there. Amen to that. While we were still dead in our trespasses, even when we had done nothing and could do nothing that would require God to forgive us, it was then that God chose to forgive us. God chose. All are called, few are chosen. It was a gift. Without the grace of God, you could believe all day long and it would do you no good. I like to tell people that grace is the thing that takes your head knowledges and, and applies it to your heart. It is that thing. You can know God all you want, but knowing God isn't just it. That isn't the end. It is when the grace of God takes the knowledge and turns your heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that you can understand the truth. You can understand that only comes by the grace of God. For it is by grace grace alone. Without the grace of God, you could believe all day long. And without God's grace, it, it would do you no good. We'd all go to hell. But praise be to God. And then the fourth one, uh, uh, sola scriptura. You guys ever heard that before? Scripture alone. This is the thing that led Martin Luther to nail on that door, those 95 criticisms, because the church in his day was, they, and the Catholic church still has this, this thought that uh, it, it goes to the apostleship of Peter, and as that goes down the line, so is Paul, or so is the Pope, and that the Pope can find his lineage of, of, the, of his apostleship through the first Pope that they call Peter. And because of that, Peter was the one that, that was a declarative. And he had that authority of apostleship, so his words held meaning. And so they can claim the Pope's words, being in the spirit of Peter, also has the same authority as if you're reading First and Second Peter. And the words that came on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches and 3,000 get saved, they think it's the same but they would add tradition and, and these extra things to it that weren't biblical. And no one knew about it because they couldn't read it because I don't know if you know this, but Latin is a very hard language to learn. And that's if you know how to read. Most people didn't even know how to read basic English back then. It was only reserved for the, the high intellect. So you can see how easily it was manipulated. 
When, the, when, it's, when with, with Constantine and the, the Holy Roman Empire, after that movement, when they realized how much power that they actually had over people, not just militarily, but over religion, and then they could control entire kingdoms because the Pope's word was, that, was thought to be that powerful, it got manipulated very quick. So Martin said, no, that's not how it works. Let's read the plain words of God as they were set forth. Scripture alone. John MacArthur, if you know who he is, he's a, he's a pretty popular minister out in California, solid, solid Bible teacher. He speaks very educated, so some people might think he's quite boring, but I encourage you, get read it, don't listen to it. <laughs> he has this to say, Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. Everything that we need to know about us and our salvation is in this word, in this book. We don't need anything else. This is the highest authority that leads one into saving knowledge of Christ. That's what it means. It is not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. The most ardent defender of sola scriptura will concede, for example, that Scripture has little or nothing to say about DNA structures or the rules of Chinese grammar or rocket science. That's not what it means. As Peter states in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises, star rises in your heart. The Bible is more solid than anything else that we can base our lives on. And the words found here will lead us to more truth and knowledge in Christ than anything else in the world. There's nothing better than the truth found in here. And there's another line of thinking, um, and I, I find myself there. It's called presuppositionalism. And I know that's a fancy word, but that means that uh, you, when, you, when you presuppose any knowledge apart from God, it is wrong. Because my Bible tells me what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when we do anything other than use the scriptures as our basis or our foundation for wisdom, we have a wrong foundation, folks. And it doesn't take much to wash it out from underneath of us. Scripture alone is the highest authority. You can apply that to everything, politics even, right? Right now, there's this big concern with uh, Romans 13, which states that we, as, as Christ's people, are to submit to the authority of the governing bodies, right? But let's check this out, right? We have a constitution, which is the law of the land, and it states that we, the, uh, what has been given unto us by the law of the land. So if the president, who is secondary to the constitution, does anything against what the constitution says, then we have a right to refuse it. That's biblical, because our own biblical duty is to follow according to the supreme authority over the land. And guess what, guys? Guess what the founders has as their supreme authority when writing the Constitution? The Word of God. It's amazing. 
Let's not even get into the faith of the people who actually wrote the Constitution, because I tell you right now, a lot of people like to say, well, Thomas Jefferson, had he was this and that, whatever, or they had slaves. Look at those who people who actually wrote the Constitution in 1787. Only two people who were present at that were part of the Declaration of Independence. Only two. Because the people putting together the building blocks on how we would be governed thought that they had crazy theology. Said, we don't want you here because you believe something other than what my scriptures say. But that's another day. That's, I got to finish reading that book because it's like reprogramming what I thought I knew. Um, Scripture alone, scripture alone, highest authority. The fifth sola is faith alone, sola fide. And according to the Bible, salvation is by faith alone. And this faith is that gift of God. His salvation is by grace through faith. It is the mode by which grace is delivered, right? Why would, how could you receive grace uh, from something that you do not even have trust in, that you do not have any faith in, that you don't even believe in? So faith is the mode in which grace and salvation is delivered, and it, that in, it in and of itself is a gift of God. Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3, verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, which means don't ignore it because the Old Testament bears witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means as a replacement, an atonement, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe is what leads us into salvation. Hmm. Justified by grace through faith. One of the things that we struggle with is that idea that God is wrathful. When you think of hell, what image is in your mind? Who is the tormentor in hell? We think it's Satan. Satan is the tormented in hell. The wrath of God is the tormentor. The wrath of God is something that we don't like to talk about in church. Because it is what is poured out on the sin and the sinful. And it was poured out on that day of judgment when Christ took the sins of the world 
upon himself. The sky went dark, the veil tore, and Christ forsaken because the full wrath of God was being poured out upon him. See, church, what we need as sinners is the wrath of God, is what we deserve. But praise be to Christ who took that wrath upon himself. That's what we mean by propitiation. That somebody else not just took the punishment, they took the wrath. It is in this faith that we receive the salvation work of Christ. It's not a raise raise your hand, say this prayer after me, Jesus come into my heart. No. More human beings have walked into the pits of hell after saying those words than anything else. Because it's not about a magical word spell that you say is it about a, an understanding through faith by grace in Christ revealed through the scripture for the glory of God when those things come together you see how beautiful that is when those things come together and you have a proper understanding of the framework the foundation that these men were living in their lives and they're willing to run into the flames of death they were willing to lay their own lives down We like to think, I would like to think that I would stand shoulder to shoulder with these giants when my faith is tested. But until you're put in that situation, you never know. You never know. Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law or is... God, the God of Jews only, he, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the, is the one who will circum, justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Praise God that he justifies not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Because folks, we are the Gentiles. <laughs> The promise laid down in Scripture to Abraham that through his seed, God would bless the nations was delivered through the man of Christ. God stepping into man, into creation, to bless the world. As we spend the rest of the week in eating candy and turning the next holiday corner, let us not forget the reality of salvation and the trueness of Scripture. It is truly humbling for me that I have an opportunity to stand before in this, this, this charged position to preach the gospel as so many giants went before me. 
I feel for too many years, I just went through the motions. Like, I can talk good, so I must be able to be a preacher, right? No. The message that we carry, folks, is too dear and too valuable to be thrown away. Let us, let Christ be the focal point of our lives. And let us be Christians that shine that example to the glory of God.